And the wife, in her submission to her husband, is actually imitating the church, the bride of Christ, to her husband, yes, to her children, certainly, and to the world at large, absolutely. When someone sees a right marriage, they should see a picture of a submissive church to its Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's continue on. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So here we have instructions from Paul regarding the husband. And he very clearly is to be a picture of Jesus Christ, as Christ relates to his bride the church. And so what does it say? Wives are called to submit. And that brings a lot of consternation into the minds of women in our society. But what's the man called to do? He's called to give himself up for her. How did Christ give himself up for his bride, the church? He died on a cross. So men We are called to be extremists in our marriage. And we are to put our brides so much in front of us and to put their interests so much ahead of us that we are to image Christ and lay down our lives for them. That's extreme language. And I don't hear men running around in America complaining about being called to lay their lives down, and I wish they would. They're not even clued into this fact that we are to sacrificially lead our wives that God's given us. And he is to love her. We are to love our wives as our own body. All right? The same thing is said in the wife. She's the body. He's the head. We are to love our wives as our own body. The two become one flesh established in Genesis 2.24 in the garden. It's not something new in the teachings of the Bible. This is how God ordained it from the original creation. And the husband, in laying down his life for his wife, is actually imitating a Christ who put the interests of us ahead of his own and died in our place. It's biblical manhood, biblical husbandry, to lay down your life for your wife. Now we continue in Ephesians 5.31. Therefore... A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So Paul is quoting directly out of Genesis 2.24. This mystery in verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. So it's plain as day here. Paul is saying the marriage between one man and one woman is to be a mysterious presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his relationship with his bride, the church. So marriage is the gospel. It's that big of a deal. Marriage is more than merely a man and a woman hanging out together for a few years. Merging assets, 
sharing some bank accounts and some credit cards and some cars in a roof. Marriage is far more than that. Marriage is more than merely reproducing the human race. It is the means by which God extends the human race, yes, but it is far more than that. Marriage is more than staying together until the kids are grown and out of the house. That is not a picture of biblical marriage. A picture of biblical marriage is permanency, exclusivity, loyalty. And marriage is much more, much more than a remedy for loneliness, single people. And I understand loneliness. I was single at a time. But marriage is much more than curing your lonely moments in life without a spouse. It's a bigger deal than that. No, no. Marriage is profound because God says it proclaims the gospel when it's done according to his will. It it refers to Christ and his church. So Paul says here that marriage is a mystery, and it's the mystery of the gospel. And he tells us that we are to portray this gospel to the world that we live in, and yes, to one another. And so, first of all, I would say, I'm thinking in a Sermon on the Mount context here, what have we covered thus far in the Sermon on the Mount? And I instantly am drawn to, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So marriage is us being salt to the earth. What does salt do? Remember that sermon? It prevents decay. That's what salt's purpose is. And our our society that we live in is decaying morally. And so when we live out a biblical marriage, portraying the gospel to the world, we are salting the world and preventing the moral decay from exponentially growing. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do you light a lamp and place it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. And then he says... In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When a man and a woman live in a biblical marriage where the man lays his life down for the wife and where the wife submits to to Christ as, as the church does, submits to the husband as Christ does to the church, when that happens, light is shining in a dark world. And so we are called as Christians, as disciples of Jesus Christ, to live out the biblical purpose for marriage established in Genesis 2.24 and the biblical purpose for marriage established in Ephesians 5. And we are to be gospel proclaimers in the way we relate to one another. Marriage is a big deal. Marriage is a huge deal. And when we live this out rightly, we are salt to the world. We are light to the world. Secondly, I would say this on the opposite end. This is scary, but this is true. When we do not live in a biblical marriage, we are proclaiming, you ready? We are proclaiming to the world an anti-gospel. That's strong, but that's true. When a husband and a wife separate and divorce and break the exclusive loyalty, the permanent loyalty, and the physical loyalty that God's called them to be about, We are proclaiming an anti-gospel. We are saying that a husband is not laying his life down for his wife. And that's in essence saying, I am not going to imitate Jesus Christ who did what I'm not willing to do. 
And when a wife does not submit to a husband, she is saying this church thing and submitting to Christ, no way. I submit to no one but myself. And that is an anti-gospel statement. And so we're quickly coming to the conclusion that divorce, according to the Bible, is an anti-gospel act, making an anti-gospel statement to a lost, dead, and decaying, and dark world that needs salt and light proclaimed to it. Strong. For a man to divorce his wife, to remove her from himself is the exact opposite of what Christ does with his bride, the church. For a a man to remove a wife from himself is to tear apart the two that became one flesh. And for a wife to divorce her husband, to remove him from herself, is to defy the command that the two shall become one flesh. And it is the exact opposite of what the church, true church, does with her husband. So there we have it, God's design for marriage established in the Garden of Eden and promoted as a gospel presentation in Ephesians chapter 5. And we have to ask ourselves the question, are we doing what God established and what God's called us to be about? Next, let's look at this. Let's look at God's position on divorce. And I want us to look at two passages here. This is This is something that's going to require us looking in two different locations. I want you to go to Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 3. And when you get there, I also want you to pull up Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Okay? So Matthew 19, 3, Deuteronomy 24, 1. Because by itself, Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is kind of perplexing. Because we want more information. Give us more here, Jesus. And actually... Matthew was inspired to give us more because Jesus has a dialogue in Matthew 19 with the Pharisees about divorce. And so we're going to look at that passage in light of the Sermon on the Mount passage that's the text for this morning's sermon. Matthew 19, 3. Let's just read 3 first. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So note here, first of all, you, you, we, we, we talk about this often. We need to read the text slowly. There's a test that's being applied to Jesus here by these Pharisees. It says it plainly. He tested them. They're attempting to entrap Jesus on a difficult question of the day. And they're citing the law from Moses that's found in Deuteronomy 24.1. So now look over there with me. Just flip over there. Deuteronomy 24.1. Just the opening phrases. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, da-da-da-da-da, we'll come back to the rest in a moment. But I want you to note there's two phrases here that, that need to be understood rightly as these Pharisees test Jesus. In Jesus' day, there were two schools, two rabbinical schools that kind of had, not kind of, that absolutely had two diverging translations or understandings or interpretations of Moses' law in Deuteronomy 24. The first school is called the Shammai school, and this is a conservative group of rabbis, and they focused on, listen to this, they focused on the phrase, 
he has found some indecency in her from that Deuteronomy 24, one passage. They focused on that phrase. He has found some indecency in her. And they took that to be a reference to some kind of sexual immorality that she has committed. Okay? So that's the first school. The second school is the Hillel school. And this group was a liberal group that focused on another phrase. They focused all of their attention on the phrase, if then she finds no favor in his eyes. And took it to mean that a man could divorce his wife for anything and everything. The man calls the shots. It's all about him. And even if she merely burns the toast in the morning, he can cast her out with a certificate of divorce and be just fine before the Lord. Okay? That is the prevailing school of thought of these Pharisees who have approached Jesus on this day to test him and to entrap him. And their question reveals that they thought that the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy 24 was the ultimate and final word on the matter of divorce. And they have long since forgotten Genesis 2.24. And I would say to you this morning that our society, and I'm talking about the world, is following the second school, the school of Hillel, the liberal view that a man, woman can divorce for any reason. You look at the laws of the, on the books of our nation and other nations around the world, and they are at best called easy divorce. Any reason divorce. Irreconcilable differences. And that is the school of Hillel. It says, if this doesn't feel good, if this doesn't meet my standards, I'm out with no repercussions. That is not what the Bible says about this issue. So we see here these two schools of thought, and Jesus is going to respond to this testy question that these Pharisees have given him. And I love it because Jesus really doesn't answer their question because they're asking the wrong question. And he answers the question that they should be asking. He begins, number one, by citing God's original decree. Look at it. We're in, in Matthew chapter 19. Flip back over there. In Matthew 19, verse 4, he answers them, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So Jesus directly doesn't go to Deuteronomy 24. He surpasses that and goes all the way back to Genesis chapter two and says, here's what God says about a man and a woman coming together in marriage. Here it is. It's not what Deuteronomy says. Then, <laughs> only as Jesus can do, look in verse 6 of Matthew 19. Only as Jesus can do, he expands the decree of God. And he can do this because he is God, right? Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. And because he is God, he adds to what God said in Deuteronomy 2.24. And he says, therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So he takes Genesis 2, 24, the two shall become one flesh, and then he adds to it, this cannot be separated by man. Period. Another topic, it can be separated by God. If the death of one spouse occurs, the other one is free to marry, okay? So man cannot separate because man cannot kill another. 
Only God can separate a marriage, and it would only happen through the death of one of the spouses. And so from this, we must conclude that God had no provision for divorce in his original creation. Period. And divorce is not an issue in Genesis 2 because we've not eaten from the tree yet, right? We've not defied God's command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Pharisees, therefore, are asking the wrong question of what God's demands are on marriage. And Jesus basically tells them that God's design is that a man and a woman should be exclusive, permanent, and physically loyal for all their days that they draw breath. But then Jesus doesn't leave it at that because you're probably asking the same question, but what does this, Genesis, this Deuteronomy 24 passage have to do with all this? We can't ignore that, can we? And Jesus explains the provision for divorce in the Mosaic law. Verse 7 of Matthew 19. They said to him, why then? Okay, you say that's all great. Took us to Genesis 2.24. Why then did Moses command one to give her certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So Jesus shows us that this law in Deuteronomy 24 should not be used to justify easy divorce. Rather, it is a concession to the sinfulness of man after the fall in the garden. In this Deuteronomy 24 passage, it merely regulates man's sin for adultery. It's not a decree. It's not a command. Okay? The Pharisees say, did not Moses command? He did not command. Jesus says he made an allowance for. He made a provision for. And so let me ask you this question. Does it discomfort you to say that God, in response to man's sinfulness, makes an allowance for them? He makes a concession to them that, okay, now that you've sinned, I'm going to allow divorce into the arena. Does that seem odd to you? Can you think of another time in Scripture where God's made a concession to the demands of man? I go to Israel's demand for a man king. God was the king of Israel. Israel demanded, we want a king like all the other nations around us. And what did God do? He made a concession to their sinful desires and said, okay, you want that? I'm going to give it to you. I've got to regulate your sinfulness, but here are some requirements that I'm going to place upon this. And he set out stipulations for what this man king ought to be about. And so God has at other times made concessions to the sinfulness of man because he understands that the fall has totally permeated us. And we are now in bondage to sin. And so this is a regulation that God has set in place to regulate our sinful fallen state until he remedies it once and for all through his son, Jesus Christ. And so God is making a concession to human sinfulness. And the main idea that we get from this Deuteronomy passage is not what the Pharisees are claiming anyway. Because if you read the rest of Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 5, what Moses says is, if a man divorces his wife and she goes and marries another, and then he either dies or divorces her, that first man can't remarry her because that would be adulterous. That's what the Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 5 text is about. It's not about willy-nilly irreconcilable differences, divorce, and, oh, wait, I changed my mind. It's not necessarily a permanent decision. I'm going to remarry her now. 
because she's now become the wife of another husband, and he now becomes an adulterer should he remarry her. That's what that passage is about. And Jesus is showing that God's design for marriage must be taken all the way back to the Garden of Eden. So now we come back, and let's, let's stay focused on our text at hand, Matthew 5.32. And with it, we'll read Matthew 19.9. Because Jesus says this, But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus basically says the same thing in Matthew 19.9. And I say to you, Pharisees, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So we see here a controversial passage because it seems that, and I I think it is true, Jesus is making an exception to the no-divorce decree that God has given. And that exception is based upon the grounds of sexual immorality between one of the partners in marriage. So a divorce and remarriage due to unfaithfulness does not make the innocent spouse an adulterer. That's what this text means. The one that was unfaithful in marriage, yes, is an adulterer and is forbidden to remarry. But the innocent spouse in an unfaithful marriage is not an adulterer if they remarry. I think that's the proper translation of this passage. A man or a woman who marries a divorcee whose divorce is due to adultery and is the guilty party in that adultery, the man that marries that person, the woman that marries that person, is guilty of adultery because they are marrying another person's spouse. Let me say that again. A person who is guilty of unfaithfulness in marriage, if they remarry someone, the someone that marries that guilty person is an adulterer. And they are, in fact, marrying another person's spouse. Marriage creates a bond between a man and a woman that cannot be broken. According to God, people who have been married remain married. And there is one exception to this, and it is sexual immorality, sexual unfaithfulness within marriage. So anyone who divorces his wife is at fault because he is causing her to commit adultery if she marries someone else since the first link is not really broken. Let me just say this. I know several people, more than 10 couples, who have had sexual unfaithfulness in their marriage, who are still married to this day. Because the grace of God and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ so permeated their souls that they could turn and extend it to one another. And so this exception clause, this is dangerous, dangerous water for you and me. Because this is not designed by Christ to be a license to divorce. This is not a command that if there's sexual unfaithfulness in a marriage, divorce is automatic. This is a provision for divorce should that happen. But the role that the, the word plays in this is so huge. We must pursue reconciliation, even in marital unfaithfulness. We must pursue reconciliation between this husband and wife. And if there is genuine repentance and a cessation of this unfaithfulness and a complete brokenness and a mourning and a poorness of spirit for this sin, then I'm going to urge 
all of us, if we're ever in this unthinkable situation, to be forgivers as Jesus Christ forgave us. So this is not a license to divorce if there's sexual unfaithfulness. This is a provision for, and I say that it should be done only after all means of reconciliation have been exhausted. Pharisee said Moses commanded it. Jesus said no, Moses allowed for it. It's not a command. So now let me ask this question. Why is divorce such a temptation in our society, in our world? And it is an intense, extreme, never-ending temptation. I'm going to tell you it's because of 1 Peter 5.8. Be watchful, be alert. We say this passage so often on Sunday mornings. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You need to memorize that passage. And you need to apply that passage to all kinds of facets of your life. And let me apply it this morning to marriage. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking a marriage to devour. Why? Satan wants to devour marriages Because marriages were designed to be a proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Satan is real. Satan hates God with a real hatred. Satan hates the gospel with a real hatred. And Satan therefore hates marriage with a real hatred. Because because God designed our one flesh unions to be a proclamation of the gospel to the world. God designed your marriage to proclaim the gospel to me. God designed your marriage to proclaim the gospel to your spouse, to your children, to your church. Marriage is such a big deal that if it is dissolved in our church, it hurts all of us because it's an anti-gospel act. I hope I'm lifting the bar high and that you're seeing marriage far more supremely than our culture wants you to believe it to be and that our adversary would like you to believe it to be. And so he's prowling around, and if he can strike out a marriage, that's one more rock that he has thrown against the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that rock that he has thrown is really at other people who are looking on and could be distracted away from the gospel because they don't see it lived out between a man and a woman. That's what's at stake. When we talk about divorce, that's why it is tempting for some to flee the scene because there's an adversary that's whispering in the ear, kill it, kill it, kill it. This is real. And so the question this morning for all of us is, what are we doing right now, no matter where we are in our marriage? Are we rocky right now or are we sailing smooth? Wherever we are, what are we doing right now? to deflect and extinguish the fiery arrows of this adversary that's coming for us. Biblical marriage is not driven by falling in love. That's the language of our culture. If you can fall into love, you can fall out of love. This is not merely falling in love. God has brought together a man and a woman, and the two have become one flesh Let not man separate what God has brought together. This is not about falling in and out of love. This is about obedience to God who brought a man and a woman together. And boy, love has got to be there, yes. 
Don't get me wrong. This is not a clinical, robotic-like relationship. There is love involved, but it's love because it starts with the love of Jesus Christ. And a love for the other and putting the interest of the other ahead of themselves because the man is to image Christ and the woman is to image the church. And so this is not a situation where we can fall in and out of love. This is a a command by God because God has brought together a man and a woman. So biblical marriage is a commitment. And it's a commitment to God first and foremost. And the spouse second. And the children third. And the church fourth. And society fifth. It is a commitment, but it is a commitment that has been made before God. All marriages have times of difficulty. That is true for every single one of us in this room. Every marriage has times of difficulty. But we are to sort those times of difficulty out in the light of the Scriptures. When we have difficulty in a marriage, we are to run here. When we have difficulty in the Scriptures, we are to run to one another, and one another is to point us to here. If you have difficulty in your marriage, I invite you to come to me Come to the elders. Come talk with us. And we will only show you here what you are to do with your marriage. Do not turn to the world to solve your marital problems. Because the world will say dissolve it. The world will tell you to end it. Satan is seeking to devour it. So we are to strive at strengthening our marriages as an act of submission and worship to God. And it is him that we are to honor with our marriage first and foremost. And we are to love one another in a determined commitment to seek the other's good, fulfilling our roles of presenting the gospel. Wives as church, men as Christ. And this is where the greatest commandment that Jesus gave us in Matthew comes out. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And you'll love your neighbor as yourself. Your neighbor is your spouse. And so a marriage must be based on loving God and loving spouse. So I conclude with this. The Sermon on the Mount tells us what true followers of Jesus Christ look like. And we are to line our lives with the Sermon on the Mount, not the Sermon on the Mount with our lives. We are to be poor in spirit. We are to be meek. We are to be merciful. Yes, we are to be peacemakers. We are not to be angry murderers. We are not to be lustful adulterers. We are not to be adulterous divorcees. Instead, we're to be salt in a decaying world and light in a dark world. But we have come to realize that we have broken God's command. I come to this sermon this morning very aware that right here in our midst we have divorcees. I know this. I struggled to bring this sermon. We don't run from hard texts. We're going verse by verse. And Jesus had for us to talk about divorce this morning. And I said, Lord, there are divorcees in this church that are going to hear this message. And there are some in this church, perhaps, that do not have a biblical divorce. That the exception clause does not apply. There's not sexual unfaithfulness in the marriage. It was irreconcilable differences. And Jesus has told us this morning, that is wrong, that is sinful. There is no provision for that in God's decree for marriage. And that might be you this morning, and you've committed that. So what do we do? Do we despair? 
Or do we look to the rest of Scripture for a solution to this turmoil, this tension that I've just introduced into our lives by proclaiming what Jesus said to us? And I'd say we don't despair. I want to tell you some good news. No matter what we've done, we've talked about murderous anger. We've talked about adulterous lust. Now we're talking about adulterous divorce. We've all been guilty of one or all of these, including the preacher. And so what are we to do in response to this? We are to look to Jesus Christ. And we are to, we are to cite to ourselves what Micah had to sing. Micah, I love that you put that song in this morning. We did not pre-plan this. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Let me give you a verse for this. Let me give you a verse. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Don't look it up, just listen. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Paul writes to sinful Corinthian church members, okay? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. You hear the past tense language there? And such were some of you. Some of you were adulterous. Some of you were greedy. Some of you were drunkards. Some of you even practiced homosexuality. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So if you come this morning and you've got an unbiblical divorce in your life, you can be forgiven of this. You can be washed because you are this bride that Jesus presents as spotless and without blemish before himself. And you can only do this by repenting of your sin, confessing it to Jesus, and honoring him with where you find yourself in life right now and from here forward. Okay? So there is a call here to repentance, yes, but there's also some good news. That we are freed from our bondage to sin. We are forgiven for our sins only through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross on our behalf. Jesus kept this law. He kept every law. He didn't abolish them. He fulfilled them. And if you believe that he fulfilled them in your place, you can be forgiven. And you can live without guilt, being proven innocent in the matter for all time. So I urge you this morning to evaluate where you are in this situation. Evaluate your marriage. Are you, are you drifting towards the rocks? And do you need to make a corrective maneuver that involves the Word of God and the church of Jesus Christ and the under-shepherds of this church? And do you need to write yourself? Do you need to understand your past in light of the gospel? And understand the forgiveness that is offered to you through Jesus Christ. I pray that you would weigh that this morning as you evaluate your life against the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, strong language is difficult to come upon in some cases. In other cases, Father, when you confront us, it is so freeing and exhilarating to have 
the truth about ourselves revealed and acknowledged by you.